Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Tuesday, January 9th, 2024. I'm your reader, Catherine Moyers. From the front page, we have this article, Legislature Convenes with Vows of Tax Cuts, by Caleb McCullough, Aaron Murphy, and Tom Barton. Iowa's majority Republicans promise steep tax cuts and a continuation of their conservative agenda as they gaveled in for the first day of the 2024 legislative session Monday. Republican and Democratic leaders made opening speeches laying out their priorities for the session. Republican leaders in the House and Senate promised to accelerate income tax cuts they had passed in 2022 and expand business opportunities in the state. Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitver, Republican of Grimes, compared Iowa's policies and fiscal standing to those in neighboring Democratic-run states, Minnesota and Illinois. He highlighted Iowa's fiscal health, noting the $2.1 billion state general fund budget surplus, which is projected to grow to $31.1 billion in the next fiscal year, plus another $3.7 billion in the state's taxpayer relief fund. Whitver reiterated the call to accelerate the recent income tax cuts and pledged to reduce the number of state boards and commissions, a process already underway after it was included in Governor Kim Reynolds' state government reorganization plan and studied by a legislative committee. The goal is to make government more efficient and help Iowans get to work faster, Whitver said. In one sentence, here's the plan. Cut taxes, control spending, reform government, and let Iowans be great. Let's get to work. Senate Minority Leader Pam Jockham, Democrat of Dubuque, described the principles that will guide Senate Democrats' work during the 2024 session. For every item that comes across our desk this session, we're going to ask three questions. Does it create more opportunities for Iowans? Does it ensure freedom for Iowans? Does it provide more accountability for Iowans? If the answer is yes, Senate Democrats are ready to work with Republican colleagues to get it done. If the answer is no, we're going to fight like hack against it and let the people of Iowa know why. Beyond tax cuts, House Speaker Pat Grassley, Republican of New Hartford, said lawmakers would look at improving public safety and reviewing standards of both lower and higher education in the state. Grassley doubled down on House Republicans' efforts to remove books with sexual content from public schools and said Republicans may pass additional legislation to clarify or expand on the existing law. In December, a federal judge temporarily blocked a law passed last year, Senate File 496, that banned books with any of a list of sex acts from public schools and prohibited teaching about gender identity and sexual orientation before seventh grade. It should have been an easy policy for schools to implement, but instead some schools chose to politicize this issue, and if we need to pass additional legislation this session, we will, Grassley said. House Democratic leader Jennifer Conferst, Democrat of Windsor Heights, appealed to Republicans to work with Democrats on policy to address the needs of Iowans rather than pass bills approved and drafted solely by Republicans. The lawmaking process is generally dominated by Republicans who hold a strong majority in both chambers of the legislature. Democrats are generally not involved in drafting and making changes to bills, even when they are bipartisan. Instead of going 
to our corners all the time. Let's take some time to come together, Converse said. Let's take some time, not just a bipartisan vote on the board, but draft bipartisan policy that includes the input of 36 people in this chamber. How about this year? The fact that Democrats introduce a bill doesn't mean it's a bad idea automatically, out of the gate, she said. What matters most is that we build policies that Iowans will recognize and have better lives because of. We're here to serve Iowans. At a Republican breakfast reception before the session, speaker after speaker touted delivering a conservative agenda that includes lowering taxes, providing taxpayer funding for families to pay for private school expenses, and strengthening parental involvement and steering away from progressive social issues in school curriculum related to instruction on gender, identity, and sexual orientation. I could not be more proud of the accomplishments that we've achieved since we were able to achieve the trifecta, Reynolds said at the event. You know collectively, you truly are making a difference for Iowans and the policies, and most importantly, the results have captured America's attention, from tax cuts to cutting government and red tape to growing the economy. We saw nearly $4 billion of capital investment in our state last year, in 2023, from educational freedom to universal school choice to protecting life, This Republican team has delivered time and time again on the promises that we made to Iowans. Reynolds urged lawmakers to continue to challenge the status quo and continue to empower Iowans and really continue to maintain, I think, the bold and decisive leadership that Iowans have truly come to expect from our Republican leaders. We're excited about this next legislative session, she said. We got a great story to tell, we got a lot to be proud of, and we have to do more work. Leaders took a moment of silence and expressed their grief over a shooting at a high school in Perry last week that left 11-year-old Amir Jolliffe dead and seven others injured. Grassley highlighted it as part of Republicans' commitment to improving public safety, while Democrats said the shooting shows the need for stronger gun control measures. Iowa high school students in the Des Moines metro plan to walk out on Monday for a protest at the Capitol to demand stronger gun laws. People choose Iowa because our state is viewed as safe. So when we see these senseless acts of violence in our own home state, in our own schools, it shakes us to the core, Grassley said. In Iowa, every parent should be able to send their kids to school and trust that they should return home safely. Grassley did not say new gun restrictions would be on the list of policy responses to the shooting. Instead, he said Republicans would invest in school security, prioritize school resource officers, invest in children's mental health, and teach resilience over victimhood. He also connected the push for safety in schools to Republicans' efforts to prohibit books with sexual content from school libraries. Democrats also called for action in response to the shooting, including stricter gun control measures. There is no pain like the pain of losing a child, Jockham said. In our grief, though, you must also ask tough questions and acknowledge hard truths. How do we tame violence in our country? Violence that touched East High School here in Des Moines less than two years ago. And now in Perry. Now turning to page two. This story is titled Rural Economy on the Rise by the Courier Staff, Dateline Omaha, Nebraska. 
After falling below growth neutral in November, the Creighton University Mid-America Business Conditions Index, a leading economic indicator for the nine-state region stretching from Minnesota to Arkansas, bounced above the 50.0 growth neutral threshold in December. The Over-Business Conditions Index, which uses the identical methodology as the National Institute for Supply Management and ranges between 0 and 100, with 50 representing growth neutral, climbed to 50.3 from 42.2 in November. Iowa's Business Conditions Index for December rose to 49.7 from November's 44.6. Components of the overall December index were New orders at 49.6. Production or sales at 4.0. Delivery lead time at 63.5. Employment at 46.6. And inventories at 48.9. Over the past 12 months, according to U.S. Bureau of Statistics data, the state's manufacturing sector boosted employment by 2,500 jobs, or up 1.1%, the average hourly wage decreasing by 0.2% for the period, or well below the 3.1% increase in consumer prices. Even with the positive bounce in December's reading, supply managers remained pessimistic regarding the 2024 economy, with 46% expecting a 2024 recession in the first half of the year. Less than one-fifth, or 19%, anticipate an economic expansion in the first half of 2024, said Ernie Goss, Ph.D. Director of Creighton University's Economic Forecasting Group and the Jack A. McAllister Chair in Regional Economics in the Hyder College of Business. The Mid-America Report is produced independently from the National ISM. As stated by a December survey participant, Quote, I see a large drop-off coming in January that will be larger than the normal after-holiday drop-off. The rapid expansion in federal government spending and debt will limit the Federal Reserve's ability to reduce interest rates in 2024. Even so, I do not expect a rate cut in March, but no rate change at the Fed's rate-cutting committee meetings January 30th through 31st, said Goss. In employment... After two straight months of below-growth neutral employment readings, the hiring gauge expanded to 50.0 from 42.5 in November. Over the past 12 months, according to U.S. Bureau of Statistics data, the region's manufacturing sector shed employment by 4,400 jobs, or minus 0.3%, with the average hourly wage expanding by 3.4% for the period, or above the 3.1% increase in consumer prices, Goss said. In wholesale prices, the wholesale inflation gauge for the month plummeted to 57.7 from November's too hot 71.1. On average, supply managers expect prices for inputs that their firm purchases to rise by 5.9% in 2024. This is well above wholesale price inflation recently recorded by the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics of 0.9% for the 12 months ending in November 2023, said Goss. As stated by one supply manager, we are forecasting a price change of 4 to 6%. In confidence, looking ahead six months, economic optimism is captured by the December Business Confidence Index, slipped to a very weak 35.2 from November's 35.8. 
Only 19% of supply managers expect expanding business conditions over the next six months, said Goss. In inventories, the regional inventory index, reflecting levels of raw materials and supplies, increased to 46 from November's 42.6. Manufacturing firms had been expanding inventory levels for much of 2023, but recent slower growth and downturns for November and December point to concerns among manufacturers regarding the sales outlook, said Goss. In trade, trade numbers were weak for the month, with new export orders sinking to 47 from November's solid 54.6. November imports dropped to 36.9 from 46.7 in November, according to the U.S. International Trade Administration. The export of manufactured goods from the nine-state region expanded from $74.7 billion for the first 10 months of 2022 to $77.9 billion for the same period over 2023 for 4.3% growth. Other survey components of the December Business Conditions Index were new orders increased slightly to 40.7 from 40.5 in November. The Production or Sales Index improved to 60 from 35.7 in November, and the speed of deliveries of raw materials and supplies climbed to 64.8 from November's 50. The increase indicates an upturn in supply chain disruptions and delivery bottlenecks for the month. The Creighton Economic Forecasting Group has conducted the monthly survey of supply managers in nine states since 1994 to produce leading economic indicators of the mid-American economy. States included in the survey are Arkansas, Iowa, Kansas, Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, North Dakota, Oklahoma, and South Dakota. The next story is titled, Man Charged with Bestiality, by Andy Malone, Dateline Cedar Falls. Man was arrested Sunday for allegedly defiling a dog a few weeks ago at a Main Street residence. Police charged... Zachary Allen Smith, 34, of Cedar Falls, with bestiality after he penetrated the animal's genitals sometime between 10.30 p.m. December 14th and 2.30 a.m. December 15th. The aggravated misdemeanor was captured on video and shared with authorities. According to court records, the dog's owner noticed the dog was limping and unsteady and discovered footage of the incident when reviewing surveillance video. The owner then went to police. Smith allegedly said he was under the influence of THC gummies during the incident and told officers he also gave gummies to the dog for calming purposes, court records state. He was booked in Black Hawk County Jail around noon Sunday and later posted the $2,000 bond before being released. Bestiality is reportedly illegal in almost all 50 states. It became a crime in Iowa in 2001. Under Iowa Code, anyone convicted of bestiality is required to submit to a psychological evaluation and treatment. Next is Waterloo Couple Charged with Sexual Abuse of Girl by Jeff Reinitz, Dateline Waterloo. A Waterloo couple has been arrested in connection with the sexual abuse of a young girl. Waterloo police arrested Wesley Dale Widener, 40, and J. Nick Widener, 29, on Thursday on charges of second-degree sexual abuse. Bond for Wesley Widener was set at $25,000. 
bond for J. Widener, who is also awaiting trial in another case, was set at $30,000. Court records allege Wesley Widener let an eight-year-old girl climb on him while he was naked and allowed her to touch him. J. Widener was later reported uh, the incident to Iowa Department of Human Services staff and allegedly said, I was okay with it, and at the time, I agreed to it because I didn't want to cause a fight. But he's done a number of questionable things, court records state. Jay Widener is currently awaiting trial for a child endangerment charge in a June 2023 incident where she allegedly struck a seven-year-old girl in the face while she was covered with a blanket and threatened to kill her, according to court records. The girl suffered minor bruising, records state. Next is Teen Arrested in Shooting by Jeff Reinitz, Dateline Waterloo. A Waterloo teen has been arrested in connection with the December shooting that injured one person. Police arrested Tyler Glenn Porter, 18, of 124 West Park Lane on Friday on a charge of intimidation with a weapon. Bond was set at $35,000. Authorities allege Porter used a semi-automatic handgun to shoot at a vehicle occupied by three people in the 300 block of Sunnyside Avenue around 3.45 p.m. December 10th. One of the bullets grazed 18-year-old Ronald Germelin's back, according to court records. And this titled, Woman Arrested for Walmart Theft, by Jeff Reinitz, Dateline Waterloo. A Waterloo woman has been arrested for stealing more than $1,600 worth of items from Walmart. Police arrested Samantha Renee Perry, 33, on December 23rd for one count of second-degree theft. She was later released pending trial. Authorities allege she took $1,469 worth of merchandise from the store October 16th and then returned December 14th and took $196 worth of items. She allegedly used the store's self-checkout area and then canceled the transaction and walked out of the store, according to court records. Turning to page three, at the top of the page is Sires Making Bid for Iowa Senate Seat by Andy Malone, Dateline Cedar Falls. A former member of the city council is making it a race in Iowa's 38th Senate District. Dave Sires, a lifelong resident of Cedar Falls, announced he will be the second Republican seeking the nomination. He hopes to flip the seat, previously District 30, before redistricting, that's been held by Democrat Eric Giddens since 2019. Protecting Iowans' freedoms is the top of mind before going into his campaign. We have China owning farmland, which is wrong. We have eminent domain, which gives the farmers no rights when they have owned that land for generations. These are all the things we have to fight against, said Sires. When they, the government, take one link out of your chain, your chain gets shorter and shorter and you don't notice. These freedoms are slipping away from us, and I'm the guy who's not going to tolerate that. Some of those rights at the top of his list were in small books on the tables at his Saturday kickoff event at the Guy W. Iverson AM Vets Post 49 that Sires pointed out was attended by several other Iowa elected officials. The literature he was referencing was the U.S. Constitution. In particular, he's stressing the importance of protecting the First and Second Amendments. They want to take away our gun rights, the Second Amendment. They're picking on that. 
and then they won't let people speak freely, and they want to shut down our college campus, Sires said. Sires, 63, is coming off a four-year term on the council, during which he also ran an unsuccessful campaign for mayor in 2021. Professionally, he owns several businesses, including ones related to manufactured homes and self-storage, and had worked in the construction industry most of his life. The district contains parts of Blackhawk, Tama, and Benton counties, including Cedar Falls, spanning from Hudson and Evansdale to Gilbertville and Laporte City, and south to Trayer, Dysart, and Mount Auburn. Giddens is seeking re-election to a second four-year term. Some of the spark, however, is his Republican opponent in the primary, James McCullough, an electrical engineer and entrepreneur. Sires doesn't think McCullough is running for the right reason and that he is the best one to represent the party. But his drive also has to do with his tenure on the council, 2020 through 2023, when he felt he had to be more subtle or easygoing and had to try to not offend anybody when it came to his Republican support views views and pride. My wife Lisa told me you can't run for local government because you can't stand up for the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, and every other thing that you ever stood up for, he said. And I said, well then, I'll run for Senate. His campaign also has to do with his slogan during his mayoral campaign about putting the residents back in charge and having challenges ultimately with tackling the, quote, very large bureaucracy, unquote, at the city level. If elected, Sires hopes to have more success in state government. The government has become predatory upon its citizens, Sires said. Now we have to jump through hoops to do anything, and that's where it really is starting to go bad. It's us against the government. The government only has the powers we give it, and now we have oppre- they have oppressed us by having too much power over us, and it is we the people. And I can't stress that enough. It's we the people. It's not we, the government. Next is this story titled, Saturday Fire Destroys Vacant Waterloo Home, by Andy Malone, Dateline Waterloo. Firefighters were dispatched at about 11 p.m. Saturday to a fully engulfed home at 420 Bayard Street. Battalion Chief Ben Peterson with Waterloo Fire Rescue said the dwelling was vacant and the utilities had been shut off. Firefighters found no one inside after putting out the flames and searching. He declared the home to be a complete loss and unrepairable. It's the second time in recent weeks firefighters have dealt with a fire in a vacant house in Waterloo. Less than a half mile away, authorities determined someone had broken into a house at 1027 West 3rd Street and set a fire December 28th. Those flames didn't extend beyond the fireplace and chimney. On Bayard Street, a neighbor called in the emergency Saturday after hearing a crackle and a pop, according to Peterson. Witnesses indicated to first responders that there'd been signs of recent entry prior to the fire. The cause remains under investigation. Firefighters quickly knocked down the bulk of the flames in a 10 to 30 minute span, but were still on the scene for about an hour putting out smaller fires. They were working there for several more hours into early Sunday morning and put out another small fire igniting there around 7.30 a.m. The white, two-story home sits in a densely residential area and had a basement, attic, and porch. Flames did not spread to any nearby structures. 
The homes immediately to the north and south suffered minor heat damage to their siding. Seventeen firefighters and emergency medical service personnel responded, said Peterson. Waterloo police also assisted. Property records show the home is deeded to Tanya Williams with a Mississippi mailing address. Its construction dates back to 1907. Now we have this, Brass Tap Building for Sale, But Business is Not Closing, by Andy Malone. Dateline Cedar Falls. The Brass Tap listed its downtown Cedar Falls building for sale for $1.2 million this week. But ownership says it has no plans to close. It is liquefying in pursuit of plans to open additional locations, including one in Waterloo that's first on the list. James Burtis and his brother Walter Burtis, who's coming off a failed, largely self-financed mayoral campaign in Cedar Falls, would continue to operate the 5,289-square-foot bar and restaurant at 421 Main Street. They opened in late 2017. The only difference would be that Burtis Core Inc. is the tenant. We're staying in business and still intend to be a staple of downtown for many years to come, said Walter Burtis. They're looking to free up capital and reduce debt in hopes of bringing a smaller location to Waterloo. They have begun preliminary work exploring an already constructed building along the Cedar River. We feel we have a commitment to both communities as we've split time between both of them, and we want to be a part of that revitalization of downtown Waterloo, Burtis said. This would help expand our footprint and help those who don't like the travel time to our Cedar Falls location, he added. The brothers' agreement with FSC Franchise Company, the parent company, allows them to open up to five total locations. They have an established region in Iowa that extends along Interstates 80 and 380 as far as Des Moines, Cedar Rapids, and Coralville. We want to focus on the brand recognition that comes with growth and additional units, he said. Burtis emphasized there's no rush selling the building. The focus is on finding the right buyer. They'd prefer a local one and an agreement with a right of first offer to buy it back if necessary. He also hopes the person or entity has enthusiasm and commitment to the community. T&T Rentals, owned by Tony Tom Lenoyevich, said the building at the corner of 5th and Main Streets in its portfolio until selling it to the tenant Burtis Corps for $1.1 million in 2022. The owner of Tony's La Pizzeria on the same block, Tamlanoevich, has the deed for the building next door to Brass Tap, housing Sarah's Espresso Cafe and Bigfoot Betty's at 419 Main Street. Also in the 400 block, the 6,200 square foot top floor at 401 Main Street, once home to Voodoo Lounge, recently became available for lease. Skyview, a business of Ben Stroh, owns that building. Burtis will never say never that someone could come along and put in an offer to buy them out, effectively changing the course of Brass Tap's flagship location. But that's not on the brothers' mind right now. We have no plans to leave, he emphasized. The business is coming off a significant renovation and expansion over the summer. Burtis said selling was already a possibility when they took on that project. He denied the decision had anything to do with his run for office. This is a simple business decision, Burtis added.
Cedar Falls Blood Drive Aids First Responders, Dateline Cedar Falls. Cedar Falls public safety officials are hosting a blood drive in honor of first responders. The annual Blue Blood Drive will be 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. January 19th at the Cedar Falls Public Safety Building, 4600 South Main Street. Whether it's a personal injury, motor vehicle accident, or other traumatic situation, far too often we are the ones who see the need for blood firsthand, said Lieutenant Brent Cock, Iowa's Concerns of Police Survivors representative. Every year, LifeServe Blood Center partners with Iowa COPS to host special blood drives across the tri-state area the week of Law Enforcement Appreciation Day. LifeServe's Blue Blood Drives honor law enforcement officers while providing donations to community hospitals following the holiday season. Donors receive a first responder-themed t-shirt. To schedule your life-saving donation appointment, visit lifeserveBloodCenter.org or call 800-287-4903. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Thursday, January... Excuse me. Oh, Tuesday, January 9th, 2024, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Next, we'll turn to today's obituaries. Teresa Terry Jean Martin, March 20th, 1959 to January 5th, 2024. Teresa Terry Jean Martin, 63, of Monona, Iowa, passed away on Friday, January 5th, 2024, at her home. Celebration of Life Gathering will be held from 1 to 3 p.m. and a prayer service at 3 p.m. with the Reverend Erica Lenth on Saturday, January 13, 2024 at Leonard Grau Funeral Home in Monona, Iowa. Inurnment will be held at a later date. Leonard Grau Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Monona, Iowa is assisting the family with services. Judd Eastman Truax January 16, 1934 to January 7, 2024. Judd Eastman Truax, 89, of Cedar Falls, passed away at Tucson Cottage of Western Home Communities on Sunday, January 7, 2024. Judd's funeral service will be held at 11 a.m. on Friday, January 12, 2024, at First Christian Church, Cedar Falls, with visitation from 6 to 8 p.m., Thursday, January 11th at Dahl Van Hove Schoof Funeral Home. Burial with military honors to follow at Greenwood Cemetery of Cedar Falls. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to the Truax Family Scholarship that Judd and Evelyn established for marching band students at the University of Iowa. The Will Reinert Determination Scholarship through the University of Northern Iowa Foundation or the First Christian Church of Cedar Falls. Gertrude Elizabeth Fegley, August 27, 1921 to December 5, 2023. Gertrude Elizabeth Fegley was born to Frederick William and Dora Catherine Butt Bickle on August 27, 1921, near Rockport, Missouri. She passed away on December 5, 2023, at Bartles Lutheran Retirement Communities in Waverly, Iowa. A visitation will be held on Sunday, January 14, 2024, from 4 to 7 p.m. at the Kaiser Corson Funeral Home in Waverly and continue one hour prior to the memorial service on Monday at the church. A memorial service will be held at 11 a.m. on Monday, January 15, 2024, at Redeemer Lutheran 
Church in Waverly, with Pastor Corey Smith officiating. Inurnment will be held in Harlington Cemetery. Memorials may be given to Redeemer Lutheran Church or Bartles Lutheran Retirement Communities. Online condolences may be left at kaisercorson.com. David Ray Newcomb, February 13, 1950 to January 4, 2024. David Ray Newcomb, age 73, passed away on January 4, 2024, surrounded by family after a six-year battle with cancer. A private funeral will be held on Friday, January 12, 2024, followed by a public gathering to share memories and raise a glass in Dave's honor at the Dew Drop Inn in Gilbertville at 1 p.m. In lieu of flowers, donations can be made in Dave's name to Cedar Valley Hospice or St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital, his favorite charity. Condolences may be left at parrotandwoodsfh.com. Harvey William Weiss. Harvey William Weiss, age 87, passed away on Sunday, December 31, 2023, at University Hospitals and Clinics. Funeral services will be held at 10.30 a.m. Saturday, January 13, 2023, at Trinity Lutheran Church, with the Rev. Stephen Pruce officiating. Interment will be held at Evergreen Cemetery in Vinton. Visitation will be held from 5 to 7 p.m. Friday, January 12, 2024, at the Phillips Funeral Home Chapel, 212 East 6th Street in Vinton. In lieu of flowers, a memorial fund has been established for Trinity Lutheran Church, Vinton Fire Department, or the Garrison Fire Department. Stephen Elliott, November 11, 1957 to January 1, 2024. Stephen Elliott, age 66, of Henning, Minnesota, passed away on January 1, 2024, at Alamere Health in Alexandria, Minnesota. A celebration of life gathering will take place at a later date in both Henning, Minnesota and Waterloo, Iowa, for friends and family. Please visit com to leave memorials and condolences in Steve's tribute wall. Arrangements provided by Belva. Belmont Carvenon Funeral and Cremation Service of Henning, Minnesota. Larry Lee Lindsay, October 17, 1939 to January 7, 2024. Larry Lee Lindsay, SFC, retired, was born October 17, 1939 in Humboldt, Iowa to Leo Lindsay and Burley Smith. He died January 7, 2024 in Waterloo. Memorial services will be at 5.30 p.m. on Friday, January 12, 2024, at Richardson Funeral Service in Cedar Falls. Visitation will be from 4 to 5.30 p.m. Inurnment will be in Cedar Valley Memorial Gardens in Cedar Falls. Memorials may be directed to the family. Online guest book at richardsonfuneralservice.com. Larry D. Damaris, November 25, 1947 to January 5, 2024. Larry D. Damaris, 76, of Dyke, died Friday, January 5, 2024, after a lengthy battle with cancer. Services are 10.30 a.m. Thursday, January 11th at Zion Evangelical Lutheran Church in Waterloo with burial at Garden of Memories Cemetery with military honors. Visitation, 4 to 7 p.m. Wednesday, January 10th at Locke on 4th, 1519 West 4th Street, Waterloo, and one hour before services at the church. Visit LockFuneralServices.com for more. Lock on 4th is assisting the family. 
Call 319-233-6138. That's the end of the obituaries, and we'll turn to the sports page. The top of the page, it says, UNI still confident. Panthers can't keep up with the Indiana State and NBC loss by Eric Petrick. Dateline Cedar Falls. Northern Iowa fell to Indiana State 77-66 on Sunday, snapping the Panthers' four-game winning streak. UNI head coach Ben Jacobson described the outcome as a product of the quality of Indiana State and the Panthers' own inability to take advantage of key turning points. Today, we did not play a bad basketball game, Jacobson said. We played against a really good team. Their skill level and shot-making in the first part of the game and at key times throughout the game, it got us. Their skill level, their scheme, their shot-making put us in a really tough spot, and they guarded us on some key possessions. The Panthers failed to keep up with a three-point barrage from the Sycamores, who went 15 of 34 from deep, while you and I went just one of 15 on three-point attempts in the loss. Jacobson said the discrepancy between three-pointers made and three-pointers allowed is not cause for drastic change and remained confident in his team. We have to take a look and see. Defensively, were we doing the right things, Jacobson said, and which possessions could we have done a better job defensively? We will take a look and see which ones we needed to defend better. Offensively, unless I see something that I'm not thinking about, it is not going to change our approach. It is just a big part of who we are and a big part of our offense. We have really good shooters. We happen to go a half without making one, so it will not change anything on that end. Indiana State needed less than five minutes to build its first 10-point lead of the contest, taking a 14-4 advantage on an Isaiah Swope layup with 15 minutes and 37 seconds to play in the first half. Following the contest, Jacobson harped on the opening handful of possessions as what made the difference, more so than the differential in three-point shooting. The start of the game, the first even six possessions, the first six tonight, they scored on the first five, Jacobson said. So the start obviously put us in a hole. I would tell you the start of a game was really important the way it turns out. You are down 10 to a team that is that good. They are good defensively, and they are so skilled offensively that to immediately be down 10, that even though it was five possessions, that was an important part of the game. After the under-12 media timeout, UNI managed to whittle the lead down to 19-13 Indiana State lead with a 7-0 run consisting of five three throws and single Bowen-Born layup. However, Leading 23-17 to with just over six minutes to play in the half, Indiana State earned an 8-0 run to push the lead out to a 14-point 31-17 margin. At 23-17, we had three possessions that really hurt us, Jacobson said. The lead went from 6-14 to in that stretch. That three-possession stretch really hurt us after battling it back to 6 the Sycamores continued to outscore the Panthers 13-10 to in the final four minutes of action to take a 44-27 to lead into halftime. Indiana State found success in the first half, limited UNI's ability to penetrate, and held the Panthers to 8-28 of from the field. Meanwhile, on the other end, the Sycamores connected on 57.1% of their field goal attempts, including eight triples, 
you and I went 0 for 10 from three-point range in the first half. In the second half, the Panthers outscored the Sycamores 21 to 13 and trimmed the lead to single digits on a pair of born free throws from, with 10 minutes and 14 seconds to play. It was the first time UNI trimmed the Indiana State lead to less than 10 points since the 5 minute and 15 second mark of the first half. Indiana State immediately answered the free throws with a Jason Kent triple. One minute later, after Jacob Hudson trimmed the lead to a 7.60 to 53 lead with a layup through contact to energize the McLeod Center, the Sycamores again offered a three-point rebuttal as Aaron Gray drilled a shot from straightaway center. Two minutes later, after Trey Campbell converted on an acrobatic circus shot and completed a three-point play, the Sycamores again answered with a triple as Jason Kent pushed the Indiana State advantage to 69-56 to with five minutes and 57, 56 seconds left to play. Kent put the finishing touches on the win with a deep two from the corner before Ryan Conwell and Julian Larry closed out the 11-point win at the free-throw line. Kent led the Sycamores with 24 points, while Swope had 11, Larry 10, and Conwell 10. Bourne led the Panthers with a game-high 27 points on 8 of 16 shooting from the field. Hudson also finished in double figures with 14. According to Bourne, the Panthers showed resiliency in trimming the Sycamore lead significantly throughout the second half. We had a good second half, Bourne said. We thought we did a good job of regrouping and really being aggressive on the offensive end. We switched some things up defensively and thought we did a really good job for a couple of stretches in there. I thought we had a lot of resiliency. We did not make some shots in the first half, and you do not want to blame in on that. There was a lot of other things that went on, but we did a good job of responding to their good first half on our bad first half. Both Hudson and Bourne noted the confidence of the Panthers was not shaken by the loss. Everybody in this locker room knows that we have a really good team, Bourne said. Obviously, we are a couple of games behind right now, Hudson said, but I think we can play with any team in the league. The Panthers return action at home on Wednesday, January 10th, for a battle with Illinois Chicago at 7 p.m. Broadcast coverage will be provided by CFU Channel 15, KCRG 9.2, and the Panther Sports Radio Network. We have to get ready for Wednesday, Jacobson said. You just have to keep coming back regardless of the outcome. Regardless of that outcome, you just have to keep coming back. That is what this two months is all about for everybody. So we have to be good at that. We have to be good at coming right back at it, whether we win a game or lose a game. That is the only way, big picture, at the end of two months, you are in the race. Now turning to college men's wrestling, we have this story titled, Wartburg College Captures 13th National Duels Championship by Jim Nelson. Dateline Cedar Falls. The first weekend in January is just automatically circled on the calendar for the Wartburg College men's wrestling program. It is that first event after the holiday break where the Knights want to start shining. Saturday, Wartburg shined brightly. Winning four of the first five matches, including a huge upset over a defending national champion, the Knights beat longtime rival Augsburg University 21-19 to capture their 13th NWCA 
Multi-Division Division Three National Duels title at the UNI Dome. This event is a signature event, Wartburg head coach Eric Keller said. It is important to us. In a dual format, everybody has each other's backs, which I love about it. But what Keller liked as much as the victory was how his team fought in all four of its duels over the weekend. Most honestly, what I liked most about it is how our guys competed, Keller said. It was going to be a war. You are never going to have an easy championship. You are going to have to fight for everything, and I think we did that today. A fast start was imperative for the Knights, and they got one. Freshman Brett Birchman opened with a win at 125, and All-American Joe Pins followed with a technical fall at 133. But the big win came at 141, where 15th-ranked Kyler Romero knocked off reigning national champion Sam Stull, 11-4. Romero led 4-3 after two periods, but Stull had built up riding time with a two-minute ride out in the second. Romero cut Stull after erasing the ride time and then scored the go-ahead takedown with one minute and 11 seconds left. He added a four-point tilt to run away with the victory. It means a lot, Romero said of the win. I worked my butt off and it is paying off. A definite confidence boost. It makes me hungry, makes me want more. Wartburg, two additional wins from, a na- from national champions Zane Mulder at 174 and Massime and Dene at 197 with Ndene's 13-3 major decision over Parker Venn's sealing the championship. I think just staying positive and believing in our work, Romero said, of the key to winning. Because we have put in a lot of hard work, but it was believing in our hard work, extra effort in everything we do to prepare for this. It was believing in that and coming out here for the fun part. We did all that hard stuff, and this is the fun part. In their interviews after the match, both Keller and Augsburg head coach Tony Valak had the same line of thinking. The honest answer is, as soon as I can get in my car and make that 20-minute drive north, the question is, what do we have to do to get better? This is a great event, but it is January. There is so much growth in all of these guys. We have to work to do that. This is reality. Valak, whose squad was looking for its ninth duels championship, said his team took the back seat to Workbird too often on Saturday. I think the biggest difference, and something that was going to be impactful, was just attacking their hand-fighting, Valak said. I think at times we were hesitant. Overall, I think we battled hard. It certainly wasn't an effort thing. We got a few things mentally and technique-wise that we have to address. We can see some of the areas we have to improve on, and the nice part is we have a couple of months to do it. In the semifinals, Augsburg used five pins to down North Central 37-14. to The Cardinals got a technical fall from top-ranked Christian Guzman at 125, and two-time national champion Robbie Presson, who made his debut this weekend in the NCC lineup, edged Wyatt Kesrowski 2 to 1 to give the Cardinals an early 8 to 0 lead. But defending national champion Sam Stull gave Augsburg a big win, 6 to 3 in sudden victory over 7th ranked Bradley Rosen at 141, and then Pin Train got rolling for the Augies. Charlie Stull started it at 149, and then 7th ranked Blake Jagodinsky pinned second-ranked Javen Estrada in 52 seconds, and Augsburg never trailed again. Seth Getzinger, 
at 174, Bentley Schwanbach Osterman at 184, and Taylor Rawe at 197, all added falls for the Augies. Wartburg had a much more difficult journey in the semifinals, beating Wisconsin lacrosse 20-17 in a duel that went down to the wire. Birchman started it off with a high-scoring 21-15 win over Remington Bontrager at 125. Before Pins and Kyler Romero each registered technical fouls at 133 and 141 to give the Knights an early 13-0 lead. But the Eagles won the next three matches, two by major decision to pull within 13 and 11. Mulder stopped the bleeding with a 14-3 major decision over Leo Draveling at 174. The Eagles and Knights split the next two matches with Dene's 7-2 win over Ben Kazawinski at 197, giving Wartburg a 20 to 14 lead. Michael Douglas won the 285 pound match 2 to 1 in sudden victory, winning on a stalling point against Mitch Williamson. But the Eagles needed a pin to send the final results to criteria. Now turning to college women's basketball, Panthers remain simple and consistent by Ethan Petrick, Dateline Cedar Falls. The losses stacked on losses. After picking up a win in its season opener against Horizon League leader Green Bay, the Northern Iowa women's basketball team went 59 days without a win. According to UNI head coach Tanya Warren, the losing streak did not possess just one cause. It was a combination of a lot of things, the schedule, injuries, a lot of things we could not control, Warren said. But then there were a lot of things that we could control that we were not controlling, and a lot of it has to do with continuity of bodies in practice with people coming in and out and trying to find that continuity. An injury to junior guard Maya McDermott limited the 2022-23 Missouri Valley Conference second teamer and almost as soon as McDermott returned to 100% or near 100%, the Panthers lost 2023-24 MVC preseason player of the year Grace Buffelli. The star forward out of North Scott has missed six consecutive games for the Panthers and last appeared on November 29th against South Dakota. In early December, Warren referred to the skid as storm numerous times throughout the months of November and December. We are in a really storm bad right now, Warren said. However, Warren also noted that her team was not going to run from the challenge. According to UNI junior guard Emerson Green, the message from team captains and coaches remained simple and consistent during the skid. We were beating ourselves in many of the games, Green said, so it came down to personally, what are you willing to give up? That was echoed by the coaches. What are you willing to give up? Because we have to get over this hump. We know we are capable of doing so much and we still are and there is a lot of season left. This just kind of started something that I think we can get rolling. It was a lot of like, trust the process. We have put in a lot of work. We will get rolling. Last week, the Panthers showed their willingness to sacrifice, putting an end to their storm with wins over Evansville and Indiana State to improve to 3-9 and nine and 2-1 and one in MVC play. After holding off the Sycamores on Saturday in a six-point win, McDermott discussed the losing streak and how the skid ended well before the Panthers earned a victory on the court. According to McDermott, the Panthers put an end to a series of subpar practices shortly before their game against Iowa State and the holiday break. 
then, after stringing together a series of quality practices, found its rhythm again. For us, as a team, it starts in practice, McDermott said. We had some practices that were not very good, and then it translated over to our games. You see that. You see, when we are not making shots in practice, or we are not playing with pace in practice, it is going to translate over to games. We just started off not having very good practices. That is where they emphasize that it has to be very, very disciplined. We have to be very disciplined in this practice. Once we start to get a handle on that, then it translated to games. Winning means scoring a lot, McDermott said. I think we are a very fast-paced team. So once we see the ball go in the hole, I think it is like, oh, wow, now we feel pretty good. Once we get in our rhythm and our mojo, we are really a really hard team to beat. And that does it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Tuesday, January 9th, 2024. I'm your reader, Catherine Moyers. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thank you for listening. Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. What exactly is fossil water, and why have we consumed so much of it? No, it's not a new brand of bottled water imported from the days of dinosaurs. Fossil water came from melting ice sheets, ancient lake systems, and a generally wetter climate tens to hundreds of thousands of years ago. It percolated into porous rocks, which were then buried under deep layers of sediment where it was sealed off from the surface, and there it stayed, until farmers discovered it. And in the second half of the 20th century, they started drilling wells into fossil aquifers and pumping like mad, turning sunny, dry places into acres and acres of green farmland. Crop supplies boomed, food became cheaper and more plentiful, 
grown in formerly parched places like California and Kansas, and shipped around the world for people like you and me to eat, ingesting fossil water with it. The trouble is, fossil water is a finite resource, and new studies suggest that many fossil aquifers may become depleted this century, so that we won't be able to rely on them any longer. This could mean that the crops that depend on them could become less plentiful and more expensive again. All the while, population will likely increase, the climate will likely warm, our demand for water will continue to climb, which means we'll have to adapt to the lack of fossil water just as we adapted to its discovery, this time with more efficient crops and farming methods and more efficient use. For Earth Date, I'm Scott Tinker. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org. Are you among the millions of Americans living with chronic pain? If so, you may think prescription opioids are the solution. The truth is, the benefits of opioids are limited. Opioids only mask the pain. Opioids also come with serious side effects, ranging from nausea to withdrawal symptoms to overdose. As many as 25% of people who are prescribed opioids struggle with addiction. And those who are addicted to opioids are 40 times more likely to move on to heroin. No one wants to live in pain, but no one should put their health at risk to be pain-free. There is another choice, physical therapy. Physical therapists treat pain through movement and exercise, no warning labels required and you get to be an active participant in your care. Choose to treat your pain safely. Choose physical therapy. Visit moveforwardpt.com to find a physical therapist near you. This public service announcement is brought to you by the American Physical Therapy Association.